0: Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome
1: back to Series 6 of Helpful Social Work. I'm Jerry. And I'm Jo. Throughout this series, we're looking at equality and anti-oppressive practice, and we've been using the Equality Act in England as a framework um, and I, I think we've been quite bold doing this, Jerry. Actually, because it's really, out of our
0: comfort zone. Definitely,
1: we we are out of our comfort zone, and it's really made us think a lot, which which is a good thing. Um, so, uh, just to say that we're definitely don't consider ourselves experts in the Equality Act. We're just trying to have a good think about what it means for social work. So we started off revisiting the ethics and social work role around fighting discrimination and we looked at the theories that supported that. And now each month we're looking at the evidence of inequality related to a protected characteristic and we're considering how social workers can challenge discrimination and uphold rights last podcast we talked about equality in relation to sexual orientation and we didn't do a podcast in December so I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and Happy New Year to you all. Um, We are recording this in November. Yeah and it's good to
0: see that people are um, downloading our podcast. Thank you. We hope it is helping you reflect Um, and We hope that you're enjoying the podcast. You can let us know what you think on our website, um, www.helpfulsocialwork.com, or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast.
1: And we are keen still to have people come on um, and also we'll probably start, I think, promoting some other podcasts in the future that we've been listening to that have been making us think. But if you have um, anything you want to say about what helpful social work means to you, then please contact us through our website, www.helpfulsocialwork.com. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking
0: about marriage and civil partnership because it's one of the protected characteristics under the Equality mm-hmm. Act in England. So that means that you're protected by law from discrimination. Actually, it's quite a tricky one to think about because as soon as we started thinking about it, we thought that you know there is so much more to this. And we've said before that the Equality Act is, is kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of social work ethics, where we're trying to really kind of think about People's identity in the round, um, and so we've we've ended up in preparing this, um, thinking much more broadly about identity in relation to, in connection to relationship status and the kinds of relationships people have, the intimate relationships they have, what their family is, what their network looks like. But it's probably just worth um, visiting why marriage and civil partnership are protected. Um, So I had a look at the Equality and Human Rights Commission website, um, which gives some insight, giving examples of what discrimination looks like in this area. So the Equality Act says that you mustn't be discriminated against in employment because you're married or in a civil partnership. Um, So it's related to your workplace. Essentially, that's where it came from. And so examples would be if you were um, dismissed from your job when you got married because your employer thought that you couldn't do it. Um, as, say, a married woman, Um, or if you had a policy which meant that people who were married or in a civil partnership would find it harder to do that work um, or to to fulfil the job requirements. Or if you're treated badly because you raise an issue about discrimination relating to your marriage or civil partnership status. Um, So people have we know people have been treated differently differently in the workplace because of social conventions around marriage. So we talked about this. I mean, we've both got examples. My parents were in the civil service when they got engaged and one of them had to move jobs. And it was actually my dad who moved jobs, but everyone was really surprised that it wasn't my mother because the woman usually moved. And before that, the woman would have had to leave on, mm. on marriage, on getting married. And um, That wasn't changed at all. 1973 for the Foreign Service in the UK.
1: Yes, and in Australia there was a similar thing for public in the public service. Um, so my husband's mother uh, had to stop stop her job when she got married, uh, which was you know I guess probably in the 50s. But it's still you know it's still within the lifetime of someone who can tell us mm-hmm. about that. And it is worth thinking that that these things come into play that you know these um characteristics are included because sometime in the past and perhaps in the present in places people have experienced discrimination because of it
0: yeah and i think if we if we take that as our starting point but look further than that and think what are the social conventions that then lead to cultural and structural assumptions about mm. people's relationship status Um, And how do we as social workers avoid making those assumptions and really embrace people's identity around their relationships? I think that's Mm. where we're kind of coming from for this podcast.
1: Yeah, I think that's certainly what it's made us think about and talk about. But it would be nice just to, um, if you don't mind me sharing a few, um, a bit of information about uh, what the Office of National Statistics says about... um, journeys into adulthood. So that's how we're, we're kind of framing this. Obviously, once you're married or in a civil partnership, you're an adult, there's a whole lot of expectations that go that go uh, go along with that. Um, yeah, it's a
0: milestone, isn't so, it, that has been kind of expected for a lot of people and and, and that is changing quite rapidly, I think, isn't oh,
1: it? Oh, yeah. When, well, when I was a young woman, um, every time I would ring my parents to say I had exciting news, my mum would go, oh! you're getting married and i go mum i'm not even dating i've got a promotion at work you know like mm. but there was a lot of expectation um in my generation uh, i'm the last of the baby boomers um that 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 yeah that marriage was going to be the next milestone after getting it so you got your education which was lovely but the next milestone was marriage mm which I think is interesting. So anyway, let's have a little look at what it's like in 2019. That's the the latest um, Office of National Statistics Census Analysis um, about some of the milestones that are important when we think about this topic. So the age at which people move in with a partner has actually not changed much over the last couple of decades, around 26 to 27 years old. And women are more likely to move in with their partner earlier than men. So... I thought that that was, that was quite interesting. Mm. Um, and in the UK today, people in their 20s are more likely to have children than to be married. So the age for first-time marriages for men is 33 and 31 for women. So that age is going up more and more.
0: Um, and that's the really other... focused on marriage, isn't it, because civil partnership has not been available to people for very long um
1: it it, it definitely you will um so when we when pete and i when my husband and i decided to move to the uk we had been in a civil partnership in australia for seven years and um it wasn't recognized here and we actually had to get married to be able to come and live in this country okay yeah, to to you know because because we wanted to immigrate, mm-hmm. um, and that was one of the requirements was that um, Pete could only be eligible if he was married to me, because I had um an ancestry visa. Yeah. yeah. So that and that was in two thousand. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, you know there is there is kind of um a real change in how many people have been married and how many people are getting married. So. In 1979, 94% of all 34-year-old women and 88% of all 34-year-old men had been married. But by 2015, the figure had really fallen to 51% of women at 34 and 41% of 34-year-old men. So that's quite a drop, actually. That's quite a significant drop. And some of the things that might have played into that – Rising prices of weddings and the expectations around them. Like you don't go for a hen party down the street anymore, do you? You could go over. You go over to Paris for your hen parties and things like this. Um, but also, house prices are really increasing, and the cost of setting up family life has has increased considerably. As well as that, we we have seen um, changes in attitudes to marriage itself. And interesting, it says here, a reduced parental expectation to marry in your 20s, which, like I said, I I really experienced that because I didn't get married until I was 40. Mm -hmm. Between when I was 20 to when I was 40, that was a pretty regular conversation um, that older people in my family had with me.
0: Yeah, and social workers will experience
1: that if they're working with
0: um, people who's social expectations are about that, you will still get asked, don't you? um, Yeah. About your status.
1: Yeah. So um, a really concerning thing here and something that may well impact on um, why people choose to get married or not is the fact that it's really hard to get your own home. Um, And so the age at which people own their own home is continuing to rise. 50% of people um, don't live in a home of their own until they're 34 Whereas once again um the youngest age in nineteen ninety seven where people were homeowners was twenty six so we're seeing you know that that that's a that's changing all the time isn't mm-hmm. it um and it's getting harder and harder and the other thing is that there's more single parent families or lone parent families um in the u k so there were 2.9 million lone parent families in 2020, which accounts for about 14.7% of families in the UK. Um, and the proportions range, this is interesting, 11.1% in the southeast of England and 21.3% in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole range of information around there and I'll talk a little bit more about that later because I was very interested in some of the stories around this yeah so patterns in around
0: how people you know those milestones are really changing Um, some of them by choice or by changes in cultural um, kind of attitudes I guess but also some of it more forced or constrained by things like Mm. cost of living and cost of housing and and thinking about that in terms of social work practice and how we relate to people. Some of the things that strike me are that increasingly people will be in relationships without some kind of formal status. Um, so the, the range of relationships, diversity of relationships are you know much broader, which is I think a real positive and a real strength, but it means that making assumptions um, or asking specifically about marriage or civil partnership is limiting potentially mm. um, and that families structures are much more diverse and extended there'll be way more step families or extended families or networks or people um you know children growing up between different households um Mm. and also thinking about my work with um with older people there'll be more people aging who have never been married or don't have children um which again you can often be a very positive choice also means that or you know, not being in a civil partnership, or not being in a long-term relationship, it also means that potentially more people will be on their own. Mm. Um, and then you've talked about adults being on their own, bringing up children as well. So we've got we're going to be working with, as we as we always have been, but I think much much more so. People in really different relationship situations, families, and networks. And so, I mean, it's the starting thing that I've thought about something really practical is that an ecogram is really helpful, mm. so that we and can see these. And a cultural
1: ecogram as well. So, you know, remembering that not only are we going to be working with people who have diverse family situations, but they'll also have diverse cultural backgrounds Um, and the cultural genogram can be really helpful there to to really get that understanding of how people live their day-to-day life and how they make those connections, yeah, you know, where means, they make them um, and yeah. what it means. Because yeah. if people say,
0: you know, you might have two, two family structures where people have got grandparents, but in one case – the the role or the kind of um, significance of the grandparent may may be very different than in another, Mm. for example, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you might be like in my son's situation where his family, uh, um, his closest family that he considers are actually not his family at all. They're my husband's best friend Mm -hmm. and um, his wife and their family, you Mm. know, but that's the family Ethan's grown up with. And I'm sure he would want them on on an eco-map. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's really interesting actually thinking about this stuff, um, and I think for me we do need to be thinking about the, that biases do exist, and in particular that in the UK the government does have a pro marriage stance, and I, I I told you that just by telling you that actually we couldn't get into the country, mm. despite the fact that we could demonstrate a strong pattern of cohabitation for seven years. It it wasn't enough. There had to be a marriage certificate. Um, But if we think about how the government enacts their pro-marriage stance, here's here's, um, a range of of ways that they do. In terms of taxation, yeah, Mm -hmm. in April 2015, the government introduced a transferable allowance of £1,050 for couples who are married or in a civil partnership where the spouse or partner pays tax at the basic rate. So that's an advantage that Mm. that couple has, that that single people or people who are um, not recognised, don't have a recognised partnership, don't get education, um actually, the statutory guidance on the sex and education of relationships education states that children should be taught about the nature and importance of marriage for family life and bringing up children, but also stable relationships more generally. And and I wanted to um, – I, I think I unpicked this later on, this kind of idea that marriage equals stable relationship and, and why that is, why that's perceived to be that way. Um and also, in terms of support in two thousand and thirteen, the government said it would provide the funding of thirty million over four years to provide um, relationship support for couples and it 's not i don 't think it 's that we 're saying or i 'm certainly not saying that these things are bad or that they shouldn 't have happened, but it 's thinking about well what why is that privileged mm-hmm. over other forms of relationships, and what does that mean for the people who aren't in those types of relationships Um, and like I said there's this kind of idea that marriage indicates stability and I think this is really interesting as social workers for us to think about in terms of how we assess adults um, in terms of the care of their children and how we look at parents. And the first thing that I started to think about is the fact that we still don't do well engaging men in children's services. So we mostly still focus on the role of the woman um, as mother, and we tend to kind of work around the man rather than seeking to draw him into the caring responsibility. Mm. Um, and while women in the, in, uh, in the UK, as in many other countries, are actually still more likely to take the main, main caring responsibility, um, so, for example, when relationships break down, overwhelmingly the majority of single female uh, parents are females, 91%, and the proportion of single fathers with dependent children has remained more or less constant at around 9% since 1996. And it would be really interesting to think about, well, why is that?
0: Mm.
1: Because you know, um, so I'm in a rela I'm married. And we have a child, and my husband is an absolutely fantastic carer for my son, mm. and would have all the same ability and capability to care for him as I would so it's inter- and I'm sure there are lots of stories out there like that, so it'd be interesting just to think well yeah. why is it only nine percent yeah, and a lot of that is i mean if you think about that um those layers of
0: individual cultural and structural. Some of it will be individual choice or you know, nature, nurture, nurture particularly. But but that's bound up with – there's a real strong cultural barrier often, isn't there? And there mm. are structural barriers as well because the way that um, men's availability for work, for example, is, is perceived is still, is still well, different. Well, maternity,
1: yeah. maternity leave wasn't granted to men um, until quite recently either, was it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, so it sends out yeah, very right significant side. structural problems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just interesting, isn't it? Um, and it, it just made me wonder whether we have an assumption um, that the government's desired stable relationships for bringing up children. You know, that that when we're when we're working with these women and we're and we're um, focusing all of our efforts on the mothering, I wondered whether we had an assumption that these type of stable relationships are not found in social care. In people who need support from social care, so I wonder whether there was just something in our in our head. So I started to look at research to find out if um, we knew how many single parent families were known to social care, but I couldn't find that number. I did find a really interesting U.S. study about fragile families, which supported the idea that two parent families were much more able to successfully raise children. But what I really liked about that report was it really emphasised the systemic issues faced by single parents, which include low paid work, high cost of childcare, inability to manage all the time and attention requirements that children who who um, had one more than one adult parenting them could have. And the conclusion was really about how society needed to step up and actively provide better support for single parents, that kind of idea that it takes a village to raise a child. So I thought that that was interesting. And there was another study um, done in the UK by a German researcher, um, which was, it was called Under Pressure, and it was focusing on the link between single parenthood and poverty. Mm. Um, And it found that in the UK as well as Germany, single parents are almost five times more likely to receive welfare benefits than are couples with children Mm -hmm. and um, that the enforcement of child maintenance arrangements has not been very successful and that financial problems are therefore an everyday challenge and Mm -hmm. too many of these children grow up in poverty. Um, Yeah, lastly, then I'll shut up. It just made me start to think about the links between poverty and being involved in social care, you know, um, because there's quite a bit of research that suggests that children whose parents are experiencing poverty are more likely to receive the attentions of social care. And so we kind of get this circle, don't we? Um, We're going to focus on on mothers because there's not too many fathers around because they're single parents. Because they're in poverty because you know like and it, and it just kind of it feels like a lot of faulty thinking,
0: yeah, it's really important how we frame it, isn't it because the mm. the discussions about the link between poverty um families living in poverty and the um intervention of social care is is really related to the the pressure that's put on families by those as you say those systemic issues around mm. income access to jobs. Support with childcare, housing, um, and the 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 pressure that that puts on people's ability to parent really well.
1: Yeah, and so to draw this all together for me, I kind of began to wonder about whether the idea of protecting marriage and civil partnerships as an equality, and whether the right to family life as established in the Human Rights Act. Um, would would give more protection to a more diverse range of families and whether that might be more helpful if that makes sense I think yeah it's good for us as social workers to really test our belief system about what it takes for children to thrive um,
0: yeah yeah no I think that's absolutely right because the um, the right to family life in the privacy of family life in the in the Human Rights Act um, is um, is regarded by the courts as as much broader um, it feels yeah. broader to me, and also within yeah. the Human Rights Act, there is an article about non-discrimination on on all kinds of grounds, which is mm. goes yeah, you know, which is where the Equality Act comes from, but it goes mm. more deeply than the Equality Act, um, which highlights some particular characteristics and isn't. I don't think it's comprehensive enough for social work. Mm. Um, although
1: well, it is interesting totally when you start to look at any of these. Isn't it?
0: Well, in this case, this 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 particular characteristic, yeah, yeah came from a focus on employment, mm. um, but I think it's a helpful place to sort of think about these wider questions. And for, and for adults, um, you there is a, a real question as well. If you're talking about adult services, um, about the equality of respect for different ways of having relationships or not mm-hmm. having them. Mm-hmm. So um, there's there's some particular things, again, that come to mind in terms of how you might work with an adult who might be in need of care and support. So being able to have relationships is part of promoting well-being so thinking about well, what are the barriers to somebody being able to um to, to have the relationships that they want um there's something certainly something there about recognizing the relationships that are important to people um because that's part of again promoting well-being and, and enabling people to achieve the outcomes they want Um, and there's also there's a lot of work done at the moment in adult services around loneliness Um, and the research on loneliness is is related to um, often to older age but younger people younger adults can very often be lonely um, and that has an impact again on well-being um, and mental health particularly Um, and then we also have some really interesting work in safeguarding around understanding people's um, the balance between people wanting to be safe and wanting to have relationships with people who might hurt them. Uh, so,
1: yeah, yeah, I wanted to raise that point mm, as well, Gerry. I'm glad that you did No, just because it's, it's the fact that, you know, two women a week are killed by a current or former partner in England and Wales alone. Um, that's a statistic. That's the office of national statistics, 2019. Um, and the average is taken over 10 years. And so, you know, 1.6 million women experienced domestic abuse 2019. Yeah. That's just for the one year. Um, and so, assuming that a two-parent family is the best place for a child to thrive in, without taking account of, um, you know, the kind of health mm-hmm. and safety and choices and all the complex things that go into relationships, is 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 um, you know, marriage is not the answer is it in terms of creating the stability it's all the skills that are involved in having that relationship and all of the access to good resources and the support around you and all of that stuff that actually contributes to a good marriage yeah a good good partnership yeah and i think um, yeah i think yeah and, and and there's
0: there's a distinction that i want to make here i just need to think about the best way of putting it but There are some relationships that are really harmful to people Mm -hmm. um, and that people um, want to um, be protected from. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think we've very often in the past not recognised the harm that can happen in intimate relationships. And it's taken a really long time for domestic abuse Mm -hmm. to be recognised and responded to. And we're still far from where we need to be. Oh, you know, elder abuse as it was called, but the um, yes. you know, safeguarding of, of older people wasn't recognised mm. at all really until very recently. And
1: cuckooing, which was yeah. you know, another form of relationship which mm. which seemed to be uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's definitely a role for social workers in understanding the um, how those how intimate relationships and close personal relationships can impact on people's well being and be really harmful and supporting people to safeguard themselves and be safeguarded. There's also the, the thing that I was referring to as well is that, um, when you, when you work in a really person-centered way with, um, with an adult who's maybe being financially or, um, or you know physically abused, um, or you know, in some way abused by someone else, they, they may say the research points to them, um one of the the outcomes that they want may be being able to continue that relationship, so that's also mm-hmm. something that has to be respected so that's that's what I meant about the balance um mm-hmm. but I think that the the sort of darker and and more fundamental factors is that we don't have um enough services and support to enable people to safeguard themselves from a relationship that is harmful
1: yeah and it, and when you were talking then you were making me think about um adult, adults with disabilities mm. and some of the limited choices that they have in terms of their living and their relationships um and how there's often resistance um when they choose a partner um, a, a partner, you know, two people who might have um, disabilities that is considered by helping services to be too profound for them to actually, you know, live safely together. That could, that can be very distressing and difficult too um, and is yeah. certainly an area that that is poorly resourced and I think lots of social workers in that area would find themselves always struggling to find the right resources to support people to have the choices that they want to have yeah and i think again there's a there's an important distinction so there is that
0: um that duty that responsibility in england under the care act to um enable people to promote people's wellbeing, um including mm. through relationships so mm. so that is something that absolutely should be looked at and sometimes is ignored or we don't have maybe the um, the capabilities or the resource to, to do that work really well. There's also a kind of a slightly separate element, which is about forced marriage, um, which relates to people who who um, don't consent to marriage, but are forced into one, or who can't consent to a marriage or a civil mm. partnership. Um, mm. And so there is, um, there is an element that, that we need to be aware of as social workers working with adults as well that the mental capacity act doesn't allow anyone to make a best interest decision about someone else getting married it has to be the decision of the person themselves mm. so when a person doesn't have capacity to consent to marriage if they do go through a marriage it's a forced marriage um, yeah. and i think again we're getting much clearer guidance on that coming through and much better um, support and work on that
1: um, but that's something. It's it's another element of this to be aware of, and it's really and and it can be so subtle for social workers to notice some of these things. Actually, um, I was thinking of a case. It was a, I had a social worker just asking me for some advice, or asking one of my staff actually for some advice, and she pushed it through to me so we could have a clinical discussion about it. And um, there were elements in there that that could have come, you know, um, to a forced marriage scenario, but it was there was so much going on, so much activity and so many things for the social worker to look at that you can see how some of these things just kind of slip, slip under the radar Um, and then you kind of bring them up to the top again and then it's like, okay, then what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been kind of thinking about this whole time. Okay, as a social worker, how do I uphold people's rights to have the types of relationships that they value um, and how do I support them to have healthy and um, stable relationships to use the, you know, the, the, that idea of, you know, those stable relationships to raise children in? I was thinking um, more, flu- maybe flourishing is a better word. Yeah, yeah, well, I was just using the government's terminology around, you know, yeah. <laughs> stability being resi- desirable. But, um, you know, we really need to recognise the way our own personal and cultural views affect how we perceive others' relationships. And I think we also need to think about the structural elements that cause those barriers and enablers. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was, yeah, I put here, you know, consider how we can enable people to thrive in relationships because I think of social work as a skills transfer and a a kind of resource reallocation job. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're often working with people to help them gain the skills they require to flourish and these are often soft interpersonal skills of communication, the internal skills of regulation, attachment, competency, which really help us do the complex work of being in relationship with each other. So for me, coaching and modelling are two of the ways in which social workers can help transfer these skills over um into families but also, you know, um when I think about children's services, young people, young people who've come into care, young people who are transitioning out of care, really making sure that they've got those lovely skills of um being able to manage and, you know, manage anger, talk about feeling safely understand how to negotiate with another adult in an adult-to-adult conversation to talk about your needs, Mm -hmm. creating routines and boundaries that keep yourself safe and having a really nice strong sense of yourself so that when you enter a relationship, you bring yourself into the relationship instead of giving yourself to someone else, Mm -hmm. um, which, which can happen if you don't know yourself well enough. So I'm thinking this is all part of the type of work that social workers need to do Um, and, you know, we really have a critical, a crucial role too in understanding the impact of lack of resources on people and how we can support them to gain access to resources that will actually ease their burdens and help them find a way towards independence. And for me, if I think about lone parents, that involves helping them have good access to affordable, flexible childcare, helping them access other adult support in the community, um, and it's all these activities undertaken by social workers that support families or yeah fam I'm just going to call them families to thrive um mm. you know in whatever shape or whatever constellation that connectivity that be- yeah. sense of belonging comes comes to in your life yeah and the the the
0: approach the kind of the principle of going into those sort of um thinking about how people, going into that process or that, that task or that intervention of thinking about how, how people can thrive in relationships, it needs to be gone in with a really open mind, doesn't it, about what relationships will work mm. for this person? Um, and I think that's where um, you know, we, we just need to be really thoughtful about our assumptions and beliefs and values around relationships as well. Um, and the ones that are written into our policy and our guidance and our law.
1: And how that kind of can sneakily influence us mm-hmm. without us even being necessarily aware of it. That's one of the things I think is that a lot of the policy structures and the law structures and things like that, they're just things we've taken for granted, like on a form, married or single. They're, they're often your options.
0: Yeah. And although that is changing, it's still, we've got a long legacy, haven't we, of the cultural um, embedding of that? Um, and Mm -hmm. how people view things so
1: Can, can i ask though jerry so i understand that you can have a civil partnership um if you're same sex but can you also now have civil partnership if you're um man and woman if you're opposite sex yeah, you can in um. That's been changed in, in England.
0: I'm not sure, about in yeah. every part of the UK. Actually. Yeah, because
1: because that because when that first came in, when David Cameron brought in um, civil partnerships, it was actually only for people of the same sex, and, and yeah. so that that was interesting as well. Um, and so, as you say, we're we're catching up, aren't we? But very, very slowly. And there's and a lot of social workers, yeah, will have a whole range of experiences which have. Which inform their idea of what a good relationship looks like, or what yeah what can what constitutes a proper relationship based on their own past,
0: yeah, and so it 's another area of identity isn 't it where it's as as you start to think about that aspect of somebody 's experience and identity, it does then intersect with all these other kind of elements of people 's mm. culture and religion and um, ethnicity and history and age and Sex yep. and yeah, all these other things. So, um, so again, the the only yeah, we're all going to keep coming back to it, aren't we? That the 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 lens that helps here is intersectionality. Is to yes. think about okay, I'm looking at this aspect, but actually, there's the lens I'm looking through it is is a really holistic one of how these different things intersect. Um,
1: and I think you know, if we leave with a thought, for me, it's that we have to see. People's relationships through their eyes, and we have to try and put that value on the relationship rather than coming in with it through through our own eyes. So when we're talking about this work as social workers, this is this is really relational spending time, listening, being guided by the other person. That's why I mentioned um coaching and modelling as the two kind of um, skill bases social workers should be using because I do think that this is really, this should be authentic partnership work. That yeah. we're, that we're and doing. as we
0: understand that range and diversity of relationships and the importance of different sorts of relationships and networks and connections to people, we can then also mm. advocate for those to be more recognised in, mm. in policy and in services. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, as usual, Jerry, a really interesting conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I'm going to um, think about more things over the coming days. That I, you know, oh, and we should have thought about this and this mm. and this. And I, I have loved the series for that. I have found it hard because it's pushed me right out of my comfort zone. But I've also loved the fact that every time I talk to you, I go away with a head full of ideas and things mm. that I'm thinking about, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah, same here.
1: Absolutely, that reflection does. It, it it brings up
0: things to go and look at and find out more yeah, about and dig deeper into.
1: Yep. Thank you for your time. Okay. Thanks, Joe. See you later.